The Glenn Show is brought to you by the Manhattan Institute. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber at glennlowry.substack.com. As a subscriber, you will receive new episodes on Mondays instead of Fridays and get access to exclusive content, ticket pre-sales to live events, monthly Q&As with Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter, and other benefits. Your contribution will also help to fund grassroots initiatives that empower Black development across the country as we donate 10% of our profits to the Woodson Center. Thank you. Hello, Heather. (laughs) Uh, People who are tuning in here, this is The Glenn Show. I'm Glenn Lowry. I teach at Brown University, and I am uh, John Paulson, Senior Fellow at the Manhattan Institute. Thanks for tuning in. I'm with Heather McDonald. Uh, Heather is the Thomas Smith Senior Fellow at the Manhattan Institute, my colleague, uh, and uh, a writer, a journalist, an analyst, uh, author of many books, um, among which I think I must mention The War on Cops 2016, which was well ahead of its time in diagnosing uh, and analyzing the uh, consequences, the deleterious consequences of the uh, delegitimation of policing in the country. And also uh, 2018, the diversity delusion, which is a trenchant uh, criticism of the uh, affection for diversity, equity, and inclusion that has captured the imaginations of those leading cultural institutions in the United States. Um, And her most recent book is called When Race Trumps Merit, How the Pursuit of Equity, I always forget, sacrifices excellence destroys beauty, and threatens lives. Uh, And we're here to talk about Heather's book. So thanks for joining us, Heather. Yeah, well, they're not called subtitles for nothing. You know, it's like way below (laughs) the main title. I can can never remember it myself, so I'm glad the burden was on you. And I know we're probably not supposed to have any sort of extra extra mural or, or outside the boundaries of our discussion, but I can just say we've had a lot of technical problems before recording this, so Glenn, you're your willingness to uh, go over the same territory again and again is, is I'm very grateful for. And thank you for that kind introduction. You're welcome. You deserve it, Heather. Um, and uh, yes, indeed, it is the case that uh, this is our like fourth or fifth try at recording this conversation. I think we got it this time. Uh, and uh, it's a pleasure to introduce you. Uh, frankly, I mean, I think you're, <laughs> how do they put it? You're a great American. <laughs> I really do. I really do mean that you're fighting. You're fighting the good fight on some really, really important, uh, important issues. And uh, I I admire you, uh, as will be clear. Now, these are controversial matters. Uh, People will say this is the conservative line and, you know, they'll have a rebuttal or whatever. And uh, I want to at least give you an opportunity to set out uh, with care, the factual basis for your, uh, your, uh, you know, very critical reaction to the pursuit of equity. Um, and yeah, give me just a moment, because I think the framework is, is really important. This book is crystal clear. It is very beautifully exposited. Uh, the argument is, uh, impossible to miss. Uh, people take the disparity by race of the penetration of certain elite venues as ipso facto evidence of some kind of anti-Black exclusionary bias. 
they therefore are willing to sacrifice the enforcement of criteria of judgment that would otherwise be applied in assessing the performance of people in these different venues in order to counteract the disparate consequence of enforcing those standards by race. This has led to uh, a threat, in your view, and I give you an opportunity to explain why, to the integrity of some very important institutions in our society. Science and medicine are on the chopping block, as you uh, you would have it, uh, as uh, people in within those uh, venues try to meet the imperatives of uh, racial equity. Uh, beauty is being destroyed. That's an awfully strong uh, thing to say in cultural institutions, museums, orchestras, and the rest in an effort to, again, be responsive to the demands for racial equity. And lives are being lost. Laws are not being enforced. Criminals are being given a pass. Uh, double standards are being enforced. The rule of law is under threat. I mean, this is all I'm taking from reading your book. Now, uh, if that's true, uh, then we should all be sounding an alarm. We should all be deeply disturbed by this. And um, I have on not only your book, but other uh, experiences and, and investigations of my own, every good reason to think that it might be true. But I want to give you a chance to, to lay out the case, uh, Heather, uh, in science and medicine, in the arts, um, and in uh, policing and law. Well, thank you for that exposition, Glenn. And just to reaffirm what you've said, the basic cultural reflex on the part of our elites today is that any institution that is not proportionally diverse when it comes to so-called underrepresented minorities, and that means overwhelmingly Blacks and to a certain lesser extent Hispanics, any institution that is not 13% Black is per se racist. The only allowable explanation today for the underrepresentation of Blacks in meritocratic institutions, whether it's an Alzheimer's research lab or the tech firm in, in Silicon Valley or an elite law firm, uh, the only allowable explanation is, is racism somewhere on the part of the gatekeepers, on the part of uh, objective tests of merit. Uh, and and the overrepresentation of blacks in in our prison population, uh, blacks are thirteen percent of the national population, but they are about a third of all federal and state uh, prisoners. The only allowable explanation for that overrepresentation of blacks in prison is again racism, uh, systemic racism. Real, you know, individual racism on the part of police officers, enforcement of the law. And that dominant narrative is doing real harm by not just discrediting the idea of objective standards of excellence and of law abiding behavior, but actually tearing them down. And so, what I try to do in the book, and I'm probably the only person to do this. Uh, is to provide an alternative explanation and and the data to support that, which is that today's racial disparities are not the result of intentional or unintentional racism. They are overwhelmingly the result of real 
academic skills gaps on the one hand when it comes to um, meritocratic institutions and the expectation of 13% black representation in a cancer lab or real differences in criminal offending that are a much better explanation, I argue, for the overrepresentation of blacks in the criminal justice system. So again, to, to look at the science and medicine fields, uh, it is a, a quite extraordinary sea change in the medical establishment. You know, back in the 50s, the AMA was viewed as the very bastion of Midwestern Republican conservatism. Uh, and now the AMA is, is almost indistinguishable from a black studies department in its rhetoric, flagellating the very enterprise of medicine as inherently racist uh, because there are not 13% black doctors in the nation's medical schools or 13% black students overall in, in the medical student population. And so, and it's also the American Association of Medical Colleges, uh, the Association of Pediatrics, all have put out declarations that they are racist, medicine is racist, medical research journals, the Journal of American uh, Medical Association, JAMA, Lancet over in Britain, have routinely their editorials declare medicine to be racist. And to overcome these underrepresentation of minorities in medical school faculties, we are, and, and student bodies, we are tearing down meritocratic standards because they have a disparate impact on achieving this proportional representation. And so the, the medical school admissions test is being eliminated in certain medical schools for black students. The step one of the U.S. medical licensing exam, which is one, one step towards a doc, be a student becoming a doctor, this step one occurs after a student's second year of medical school, and it tests all across the medical school curriculum, anatomy, physiology, pathologies. Well, it, it turns out that black students who have been overwhelmingly admitted to medical schools through racial preferences uh, don't score as well on the step one of the U.S. medical licensing exam. And so here's the standard move that we're doing across every institution. Rather than saying, well, maybe we've got a skills gap problem, we blame the test. We say, well, the test must somehow be racist, even though it's colorblind, neutrally graded by computers, that the computer doesn't know who's taking the exam. So we're going to change the standards of the test. And we've gone from an, a graded system to pass-fail. Uh, the, the, the step one exams are used to help select residents for residency programs. Uh, and so now those residency programs won't actually know where students stand uh, on their knowledge base and will have to use a much broader standard, which is merely pass-fail. Uh, the pressure is, is happening all the way up the, the ladder of qualifying doctors. This is true in other STEM fields as well. 
before you go on, before you go on, Heather, uh, you should certainly be allowed the opportunity to go on. Um, I've I've got to, you know, I've got to do this. Uh, I've got to push back uh, because that's my job. Um, people who follow the show, the Glenn show, know that I'm very sympathetic to the general line of argument that you're making here. But, you know, I can think of a couple of things. And I know you've heard it all before. One of those things is, okay, Blacks don't do as well on the test. Are you saying that there's something wrong with Black people? I know how crude that sounds, but that's exactly the argument that's being made. That's the, the you know, uh, anti-racist uh, a mantra uh, you you have these criteria that you're using to assess fitness. Uh, I know there's nothing wrong with black people. Uh, I know black people are not inherently more criminal. You can't possibly be saying that that's racist. I know black people are not intellectually inferior. You can't possibly be saying that that's that's eugenicist. That's that's racist. Uh, so the disparities must somehow be a reflection of social failure. If not in the institution at hand, then not far away. Uh, we do have the history that we have here of racial exclusion. So, uh, so there's that. So I'd like you to address yourself to that objection. The other objection I'd make is, isn't the proof of the pudding in the eating, which is to say if we're training doctors, then isn't the proof of the pudding in how good they are at practicing medicine? Uh, who's to say that because uh, the uh, African-American students may have been admitted to medical school on affirmative action, that those who actually complete their course of study won't be effective providers of uh, medical health care services to, to their patients? Don't you bear a burden if you're going to say that this is a threat, that is, the diversity pursuit is a threat to uh, excellence of demonstrating that the people who come out of the system are not functioning as effectively as those who have not been favored by affirmative action. So I, what would you say to, to those two objections? Great questions. Um, of course, I'm not saying that Black people are inferior. Uh, I will say, however, I am going to give the data on the academic skills gaps, and I'm not going to accept that that is tantamount to a judgment of group inferiority. I'm not going to be silenced, however, in providing an alternative explanation for why the neutral colorblind application of standards does have a disparate impact, because I'm not willing to throw out meritocratic standards in order to cover up the very real skills gaps and, uh, and, and leave us without any kind of actual objective tests of people's mastery of academic learning. The idea that somehow if a test that ultimately I think the, the, the challenge to these objective tests is profoundly nihilistic. You have to eventually say that it is not possible to measure differences in knowledge, that there are no uh, range of, of people's mastery in which case we should just go to a lottery system or any kind of meritocratic system, whether it's a, a, a educational training environment or a professional licensing environment. Uh, just let everybody in or admit randomly by lottery. And I don't think many people are willing to take their the logic of this 
diversity and disparate impact attack on standards to that logical conclusion. Uh, again, there are real skills gaps. You know, the, the National Assessment of Educational Progress, which is a test given to the entirety of the American student population, uh, shows that Black 12th graders, and these are difficult data to put out there, I realize it makes people very, very uncomfortable. We turn our eyes away and would rather blame uh, American institutions or white Americans for systemic racism than look at these skills gaps head on. But the alternative to, to, to looking at them head on is to tear down meritocracy, and I'm not going to do that. So here's here's one, just one of the many indicia of these skills gaps that are resulting in the disparities. 66% of Black 12th graders do not possess even partial mastery of basic 12th grade math skills. And, and a basic 12th grade math skill is being able to perform arithmetical calculations or being able to recognize a linear function on a graph. 7% of Black 12th graders are competent in those skills, and the number of Black 12th graders who are advanced is too small to show up statistically. Now, that is the explanation. Am I saying that that is something that is inherent? No, I'm not. It, it can be solved, but tearing down standards is not the way to solve it. Uh, and then as far as the question of, well, so we're admitting students based on racial preferences, uh, but who's to say that they are not making up for that skills gap in their in their medical school education and won't be fine practitioners. Uh, that's possible, but my guess is that we would rather have a doctor who has been promoted, admitted and promoted throughout his career based on his knowledge rather than on his race. There is never a point at this at this moment in time uh, where racial preferences do not end. That's not to say that there are not individuals within the so-called beneficiary categories. And I say so-called because I think that preferences do their beneficiaries harm, and that applies to sex preferences as well. Uh, but there are individuals, of course, thousands and thousands within the preferred categories who would succeed and be admitted on their own merits. But under a preference regime, we don't know who they are. And it is a legitimate assumption as a sort of a, a rule of thumb assumption that somebody within that group of preferred category of uh, beneficiaries has benefited from racial preferences. And, you know, we know that Stephen Carter, back in the 1990s, Yale Law School professor, wrote about the dilemma of being, in the title of his book, an affirmative action baby, and not knowing whether for any given yeah. position he was the best candidate or the best black. Uh, and he could well have been always the best candidate, but that's the that's the tragedy of of preferences. And again, it's not confined to blacks. If if I'm 
if I'm catapulted as a female recipient of, of preferences into an academic environment for which I'm not competitively qualified, I'm going to struggle too. Yeah. Um, I'm sitting here thinking uh, about tests. And, you know, I'm, I'm an economist. We do a lot of statistical training in my discipline. So, you know, I know about the idea that you could have a variable that's, you know, predictive, but it might not be a perfect predictor. I get a, a standardized admissions test. It gives me some information about the student. It, it's not a window onto their soul, but it's correlated with other stuff. And I use that as an instrument to make my decisions about allocating resources or access to scarce opportunity or whatever based on its uh, social utility. So the, the test is, is just a messenger. Now, to me, the key fact here in this debate about the testing is that the test does not underpredict the performance of Black students after they're admitted. Right. You know, if, if the tests were biased against Blacks, then if you ran a regression, you would see a line which predicted how people would perform and blacks would be above the line on average, indicating that the test was understating their fitness. It doesn't do that. It predicts for blacks just as well as it predicts for whites or Asians in terms of how people will perform after the fact. So to, to get rid of the test is to throw away information about student performance. And the thing about getting rid of the test is that you've gotten rid of it for everybody not just for the disadvantaged minority population whom you're trying to benefit. So the institution's integrity is put on the line when you blind yourself to the information that's in standardized testing in the interest of equity. Because, you know, the uh, beneficiaries may only be 20% of the applicant pool or 15% or whatever it is, but the information was valuable for 100% of the applicants and you just gave it away. That that's a a very serious thing to do. I mean, and I'll tell you what's going to happen. What's going to happen at Carnegie Mellon, which is a private institution, or at Caltech or MIT, which are private institutions. But there's also going to happen in the, the physics department and in biochemistry and in mathematics at at the University of Illinois and at the University of Massachusetts. Is that if these institutions start admitting without using the information that's in the standardized test, then individual departments within those institutions are going to have to protect themselves from that by not allowing people to major in their disciplines unless they pass some other test or unless they take the hyper-intensive first two or three introductory courses and get at least to be in those courses before you can major in biochemistry at my institute. They're going to have to do that. Otherwise, they, they're going to destroy what they're trying to do there. Uh, so so that that's one point. But there's something else I have to say here, Heather, which is that you may not think Black people are inferior because they do poorly on standardized tests. But we don't really know for sure that the uh, socioeconomic disadvantage, I didn't have access to a test prep course. My parents did not have college educations. Uh, I grew up in a housing project, uh, et cetera. Environmental influences, there was lead in the environment when I was two years old or whatever. We don't know for sure that all of those environmental factors actually fully account for the disparity. We, we, you know, there, there's this elephant in the room with this, this, this terrifying prospect that in the same way that uh, Asian 
test takers tend to outperform white test takers by a measurable amount on uh, standardized measures of, you know, analytical acuity and whatnot. Uh, the, dis- the, the difference to the disadvantage of African-Americans could possibly be partly of a kind of biogenetic character. I say that with trepidation, but I'm not, I'm not declaring it so. The, the point I'm trying to underscore is that we don't know that it's not so. And so there's this, this thing that kind of lurks in the background uh, and, and it, it uh, clouds our ability to think. Uh, and I say all this with trepidation. I, I, I say it reluctantly. Uh, you know, rumors of inferiority. There was this uh, wonderful essay in the New Republic 35 years ago by Jeff Howard and Ray Hammond, two friends of mine in, in Boston, uh, graduates of Harvard University. Howard is a PhD in uh, psychology from Harvard, and uh, Hammond is a graduate of the Harvard Medical School, and a uh, very fine uh, gentleman uh, who are Black. Uh, and they call it rumors of inferiority. And it was all about the implications for African Americans of not of having doubts about, you know, our ability to effectively compete in some of these intellectual venues. Um, and it's and, and that that specter, that, that specter is kind of haunting us, uh, not just black people, it's haunting society as a whole. And anything that you do that kind of gives credence to this, and it doesn't help that there are, you know, white supremacists in the in the woods. I mean, there are. I mean, there, there are, there are, you know, there is anti-blacks. I don't know how you would react to what I'm saying here, and I invite you to. Uh, but I mean, the main point I'm trying to underscore is it's just very difficult for us to maintain a kind of integrity to our public deliberation on these questions because of the specter of the possibility that we might give credence to the, you know, hypothesis of, of African-American inferiority. Well, that's not a side discussion, Glenn. That is the very thing that is driving the entire disparate impact crusade. I think that elite whites are terrified that the skills gap is not going to close. And they're terrified that at the alternative explanations to racism, they, they don't even want to address culture, which you didn't bring up. And they sure as hell do not want to contemplate any possibility of heritability. And so they are preemptively setting up the only allowable explanation, which is racism. And if you diverge from that explanation, you will be banished. Um, so, but that is, that is the, that is the fear that after decades of trying to close the skills gaps through massive government programs, uh, redistribution of income, welfare programs, we haven't made pro- that much progress and we've made some uh, and then it stalled out. And uh, that that's the fear. Before I go forward with this, I just want to say with your previous comments about what's going to happen with if, if schools totally get rid of um, any kind of objective testing. And my understanding is that actually SATs overpredict the performance of blacks. It's not that they predict it with the same rate of, of whites and Asians, but they actually overpredict it. But in any case, you have finally solved the issue that I've been puzzling over, which is a long-term sort of game theory trying to play out what happens if the um, Supreme Court overturns the, the legitimacy of racial preferences. How are schools going to react? And 
I had reached a, a wall in my thinking, and you have opened that wall uh, by saying if if schools somehow decide, okay, in order to pers- be able to continue uh, having, you know, our diverse population, uh, we will not have objective scores because they they serve to allow people after the fact to say you still are exercising uh, preferences. But the idea that there will be now internal gatekeeping in various majors and courses is brilliant. So <laughs> I may have to steal that when the if the, when the Supreme Court, uh, if it does overturn it, and there will be a flurry of everybody writing about that. May I please, Glenn, uh, <laughs> and say that's going on because that's very insightful. Back to the issue, though, of um, proceed with my blessing, Heather. Pr- proceed with my yeah. blessing. Okay. Well, I'll I'll, I'll attribute it to you. Um, on the rumors of inferiority, um, yes, I, I would say in theory that is a scary proposition. Uh, if there is heritable differences, on the other hand, I would say that that facts matter, and that it's and it's it's still a large leap from acknowledging right now these skills gaps and moving to the conclusion that they are at least partially driven by certain heritable characteristics. Uh, It's just, it's never a good thing to suppress facts. And the facts that I'm referring to, again, are the facts of the skills gaps. Yeah, Uh, I I, want to be clear. I'm not saying that there are genetic differences. I'm saying that we don't know that we they're don't. not. Okay. We don't. we don't know that. That's a hypothesis. And, you know, when you start talking about these huge disparities of acquired mastery over intellectual uh uh you know work uh that are that by race and you you raise the specter and 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 we just you know we can't we can't be certain uh in dismissing it. You you said I didn't mention culture. I did not and in my conversation with Charles Murray about his book, Facing Reality, in which he covers some very similar ground, uh, we had this exchange in which I said culture. And he says, yeah, but you don't know that for sure either. And, you know, I don't know for sure that you can account for it all by culture. But I do know that uh, there are patterns of, you know, uh, child rearing, of peer group uh, pressure, of norms in a community, of values that guide how people spend their time and what they invest their effort and their energy in that do differ discernibly by uh, population subgroups and that seem to be relevant. I mean, if the Asians are knocking down the doors at the Ivy League and and uh, all these uh, uh, elite institutions, it, it must have something to do, mustn't it, with uh, how much time they spend on homework, with what their parents tell them is important in life, with uh, you know, with, with uh, their uh, conduct. I, I, and in fact, I think there's plenty of good evidence. I think of the book by Min Zhou and Jennifer Lee called The Asian American Achievement Paradox, which interviews families in Southern California. It's maybe six, seven years old now, but they, they come away and try to account for how these kids do so well at this very specialized kind of intellectual uh, work by saying it's it's because you can't come home with a B plus and your parents in calculus and have your parents smile at you uh, if you're one of these kids. They, the parents are saying, how come you didn't get an A? Uh, the, you know, the uh, et cetera. So uh, surely 
Culture matters. I, I'm thinking now, and I'll stop, of my friend, uh, I'll stop doing what? I'll stop defending my position that the specter of racial inferiority haunts this whole conversation. It makes it very impossible for us to talk about it sensibly. Um, and uh, I'll stop acknowledging that I don't know for sure that the hypothesis that there could be intrinsic racial differences that are part of what accounts for the disparity in intellectual performance is false. I don't know that it's false for sure. I don't believe it, but I don't know for sure that it's false. Um, and I rest on culture and, uh, you know, I, I don't know that I'm right in doing so. But I wanted to mention uh, the work of Ronald Ferguson, uh, who's a economist who teaches at Harvard at the Kennedy School and who has launched a movement uh, nationwide. And it actually has some influence in Latin America called The Basics, in which he is trying to develop knowledge in parents about the things that they do in the first five years of life that have long-lasting consequences for the neurological development of their children, for their development of their cognitive capacities. He's talking about reading to children, playing with them, about verbalizing, about getting them to know their numbers, their shapes, and et cetera, et cetera, and, and, and about how the reinforcing behavior of parents in the first few years of life have long-term implications for the intellectual development of the youngsters. And that's just one program. It's just one guy. But it's pointing the intervention at the root of the problem, which is developing the intellectual capacities of youngsters. And the, the thing that I, I that so troubles me about the zeitgeist, about the way we are deal, dealing with these things in these institutions that you're critical of, is that they wait until the end. They, they wait until it's medical school. And then they, they're seeing huge disparities in their applicant pool by race in the fitness of the applicants for medical school. And they're trying to solve the social problem of racial inequality there. That's the wrong site for doing it. I mean, you're probably not going to be very effective if by putting a thumb on the scale at medical school at doing something about those uh, 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 test score uh, disparities um, and moreover, you're compromising the integrity of the institution when you use that as the site for addressing the um, the racial disparity problem. So, and I'll stop. If we're really concerned about racial inequality, affirmative action and racial preferences are exactly the wrong way of trying to redress the problem. Uh, they they they're cheap grace. They in a way they let us off the hook. Because the real problem is a lot harder. The real problem is single parent families. The real problem are peer groups who think that uh, getting an education is acting white. The, the, the real problems are not turning off the television. Uh, the, it, you know, uh, the real problems are a, a lot of uh, failed institutions of human development that are not doing their jobs in K through 12 uh, at equipping kids to uh, be able to realize their full human potential. And we divert ourselves from this a monumental task. It's a generations-long task of redressing uh, the consequences of our history. And if you, uh, I, I don't mind saying that America has a history of racial exclusion and discrimination, some of which surely has had long-term effects that we can see the consequences of in, in our current day. But if we're determined to redress those consequences, uh, admissions policies at elite uh, colleges, universities, and professional schools is the wrong place to be trying to do it. End of soliloquy. Well, and it's not just admissions policies. Like, 
what does a diversity, equity, and inclusion bureaucrat know to do? As, as we were talking before we began recording, I was in this debate, and one of my questions on, on whether to abolish DEI bureaucracies in college, and I asked one of the members of the opposing team, what exactly is the competence of a DEI bureaucrat, and didn't really get much answer. Uh, but they really are not going to be able to solve these skills gaps. They come in way up to back. I mean, it's ridiculous. They have no capacity to go back and and change the home environment in which those children were uh, raised. But yes, it's it's way too late. I I would say um, to get back to the the difficult issue um, of of the rumors of inferiority. Now what we have is an, basically an effort to shut down any research into uh, heritability in the United States. Yeah, I know. That, to me, if you're so confident that a race doesn't exist and that there's no possible influence of genes, then there's nothing to worry about in that in that uh, research. Now they would say, well, it will nevertheless, whatever it shows, it will be used by those white supremacists to justify racial hierarchies. Well, maybe, but the you know, I would say that that areas of, of intellectual inquiry should not be shut down because the possibility of, of negative politically unpalatable outcomes. And of course, China is continuing with this research. That having been said, though, I do think that the focus has to be on culture. And it is astonishing the, again, the nihilism of denying that home environments matter and that they're, we all accept that to succeed in sports, one has to practice, one has to be monomaniacally focused on developing physical skills and the intellectual skills of being able to, you know, it, uh, reflexively calculate the trajectory of, of balls or other flying, flying objects and to gain mastery over one's bodily systems. Uh, and yet we, we think that for intellectual outcomes, that practice doesn't matter, that discipline doesn't matter. That's preposterous. Uh, and I've, I've said in the past that if if blacks acted like Asians in all things related to academic and indeed life success for 20 years, the parents showed the same fanatical attention to their children's involvement in school, monitoring homework, monitoring school attendance, uh, making sure that, that students were not ditching school, going out late at night, taking drugs. And we still saw large racial disparities. Then I'll contemplate systemic racism as an explanation. But right now, the differences in how children are raised with white, with Asians on the one hand and, and like increasingly everybody else on the other are so great that it is way premature to resort to this phlogiston of systemic racism. So I, I guess I'm, I'm outside of an academic environment. Uh, where you reside, Glenn, and so I'm I'm unaccustomed to patently uh, counterintuitive positions being put forward with a straight face because I I I can't believe that anybody yeah. could really dismiss the overwhelming importance of family 
film culture and the uh, Ronald Ferguson's idea of the basics, he's just reinventing the wheel. I mean, we've been doing this. We've got the used to have the no excuses schools to try and use school environments to develop those habits of deferred gratification and self-control that kids aren't getting in, in their home environments and an understanding that you do need to surround children with with vocabulary-rich environments. So all of this to me is so patently obvious that I, I can't believe that there's people who could deny it, but that's because I'm not in a university. <laughs> And so okay. I, I'm not I'm not confronting on a daily basis. The uh, I, I I once brought the house down at a at a conference when I said only a sociologist would believe that seventy percent of kids being born out of wedlock in a community is not a bad thing in terms yeah. of develop. Only a so you know only an academic sociologist could. Yeah. I want to ask you something else though before we move on. I want to talk about the arts, and I want to talk about the law. Uh, these are other venues in which you argue in your book that the pursuit of racial equity is undermining the integrity of the enterprise. But I want to ask you about uh, the medicine because this is, you hear it every time this issue of uh, of uh, racism in medicine is referred to, there are huge disparities in health outcomes by race. Higher infant mortality, higher maternal mortality in birth, uh, greater mortality and morbidity from a wide range of diseases, diabetes, uh, hypertension, uh, and so on. And there are allegations of racism in the delivery of care. Doctors being less attuned to report of pain in the patients or whatever. I'm, I, I, I don't know the whole landscape well enough to be able to give it in a, a granular kind of articulation. But the basic claim is we see that differences in health outcomes, lower life expectancy for black people and so on. And uh, we impute, you know, Tuskegee experiment kind of references to the fact that the healthcare system is racist. Surely this perception of life and death differences of outcomes that are to some degree a consequence of racial differences of treatment by the healthcare system is part of the impetus for medical schools uh, in our post-racial reckoning era to look at their navels and to ask themselves, what can we do to be sensitive to the fact of the overhang of race and racism in what we're supposed to be about, which is uh, promoting the health and uh, the well-being of of all people in the population? So, how do you how do you process this part of the problem? Differences in health outcomes by race, uh, a medical uh, establishment that should be responsive to those differences. And a sense that the personnel issue is part of the problem. Not enough black docs uh, asking the right kind of questions or in, in engaging with people in, in a way that would be free from the taint of racism. Well, you're right. This is a life and death issue. And the medical schools now have decided that the only, again, the only allowable explanation for these out racially disparate health outcomes is racism on the part of doctors. Uh, and it is now taboo talk about behavior in this case. You know, it is always taboo to talk about behavioral differences, whether it's with regards to crime or with regards to behaviors that that contribute to health outcomes. You cannot. So now uh, we've learned that obesity is perfectly fine. Uh, you can't you can't talk about trying to lower obesity because that is fat shaming. This has a huge uh, the 
taboo about saying that obesity is actually a health problem is overwhelmingly driven by racial disparities. So that the medical schools have decided that the only allowable explanation is racism. So they are sending their doctors off to implicit bias training. Uh, their the medical competencies that the American Association of Medical Colleges is now requiring doctors and, and medical students to show are competencies in understanding intersectionality, white privilege, white supremacy, diverting time spent in learning how to diagnose patient symptoms uh, and and absorb the problem of drug interactions. Zero sum, all learning is zero sum. We are doing less of the medical school teaching and spending more time on white privilege theory. So they better be right that these disparate outcomes are due to doctor racism and not other explanations, which would include behavior, culture, possibly uh, genetic predispositions to certain types of disease. Because if it's if they're wrong in their wager and what we should have been focusing on all along in trying to close these health disparities are things that patients have control over, uh, which is medication compliance, prenatal care, postnatal care, showing up to appointments, being able to get to appointments. You know, people in, in poor communities have more challenging lives. Should we be focusing on making sure that they have transportation easily available that will allow them to show up to doctor's appointments? But I can tell you, if you talk to doctors in big inner city uh, hospital systems that are often cutting edge, you know, it, it, it's a real question whether wealth should affect one's access to top care. We in the West and or at least in the United States, we sort of are willing to accept that. Other places think, no, it should be completely socialized and equalized and being wealthy should not allow you to buy better care. Uh, but it's not always the case that being poor gets you the worst care because if you're an inner city, you're, you're have access to Harvard medical school doctors. Um, but, but if, if that's the case, you know, that it's all racism, um, then we're doing the right thing. But if it's behavior, then that's something we should focus on and getting people into, into their care, making sure they can keep their appointments. So I, and I would say that oh, well, the problem is not enough black doctors. Uh, I guess maybe it's the case that black patients w are more willing to follow medical, you know, drug compliance instructions, hearing that from a black doctor. I would say that's unfortunate. We wouldn't accept that in the opposite direction, that whites should have white doctors or Asians should have Asian doctors. It may be a reality. Uh, and so are we better off having racial preferences in our licensing of doctors in order to create a pool of black doctors for black patients? Or uh, should we maintain meritocratic standards? My instinct would be to have meritocratic standards. So this is not an answer to the people who claim systemic racism, but 
You can ask doctors and they will say it's preposterous that we are treating patients differently. We believe in giving care to everybody. And I realize that is not an explanation that is going to carry any water with those who believe in implicit bias, because they would say that you may think you're not discriminating, but in fact you are. Um, but it is amazing the fury with which people who deny that doctor systemic racism conceit, the fury with which uh, those people are mowed down. There was a uh, doctor at UCLA who was also on the board of the Journal of American Medical Association, and he did a podcast on this issue of systemic racism in the medical profession. And he's a good Jewish doctor. He said, I was raised to abhor discrimination. My parents, we were in civil rights actions. Uh, there is nothing we think more abhorrent to our American identity than discrimination. And he said, I would say that the discourse should be less about systemic racism and more about socioeconomic disparities that may impede people living in low-income communities from having clean air. But let's not accuse doctors of racism because by and large, we're not racist. Well, this doctor was thrown off the masthead of the Journal of the American Medical Association. The podcast that he did where he said, I don't think systemic racism is the problem. It was disappeared off the web. Uh, when he returned to UCLA, he basically faced a show trial from his fellow academics. And of course, uh, JAMA twisted itself into knots, uh, decrying its own racism for even allowing this guy in the past to be on the, on its masthead. And of course, the, editor of JAMA was thrown out and replaced by a suitably intersectional female. So, uh, you know, it is, it is amazing the punishment of dissenters. Uh, but I, I, I would say that I'm a dissenter, but I, I can't be canceled because I'm not in one of these institutions. But, but I think again, we have noticeable disparities in how people uh, responds to medical instructions that should be taken into account. And to say it's all systemic racism, I think is way premature. Okay. Uh, I want to shift gears a little bit um, and talk about beauty. You say the move for equity in the arts is destroying beauty. What do you mean? Well, it's destroying the ability of human beings and young people in particular to understand or seek out beauty, one could say that, well, you can't actually destroy Bach's St. Matthew's Passion uh, or a Scarlatti Sonata because they exist or uh, the art collections in the Museum of uh, the Metropolitan Museum of Art of the Art Institute of Chicago. But uh, we are demeaning those those works of sublimity with phony charges of racism, and we are teaching young people to hate. We are teaching them to see the artistic traditions of the West and only the artistic traditions of the West through the extraordinarily narrow, solipsistic lens of identity, race, and sex. 
And what's most notable is the only instit- the only artistic traditions that are being mowed down on the basis of identity are the Western traditions. Western museum directors are not accusing African art of being racist because African artists and craftsmen were African. That was their demography for thousands of years. We don't accuse Chinese classical opera of being racist because the performers in that tradition were Chinese, not African. Uh, only we don't accuse the gamelan ensembles in Bali of being racist because they didn't have Chinese gamelan performers. Only the West turns on itself for its demographic past and says that, well, uh, the most relevant thing that unites composers as wildly disparate in their musical sensibilities as Couperin and Schubert and Mendelssohn and Dvorak and Smetna uh, and, and Rachmaninoff and Prokofiev the relevant thing of all of those people is that they're white males, not that they came out of different traditions and and gave us different ways of expressing the longings of the human soul. And we're canceling all of them because they're white and male. But that was the European demographic until very recently. Uh the West is self, it's cannibalizing itself, it is destroying itself, it is demeaning itself on completely specious ground. Okay, so again, devil's advocate here, imagining what the, what the beef is. What's the beef with uh, the European high art as the standard of beauty? And I'm imagining a person would say, we're not destroying beauty, but we are challenging your standard which we've inherited within this uh, civilizational frame, but there are other ways of looking at things. So uh, the, I, I'm, I'm thinking of this argument by uh, Pierre Bourdieu in this book, Distinction. I don't know if you know it, but you know the argument, which is this is a socially produced criterion of excellence here. There's no objective ground and the various parties who have control over the canon, you know, who, who define, you know, what constitutes the high art end of the spectrum of human expression, uh, the ones who are setting that standard, and these are museum curators, and these are people who put together the uh, compositions that'll be played by orchestras, and th- this is how public money supporting the arts gets allocated, and how airtime on you know the various venues that disseminate uh, high art are is allocated, and we have a different set of standards. And our set of standards comes out of our lived experience. Uh, and uh, no, it's not uh, solely uh, European. It's it's not solely Western European. Uh, and uh, th- that's all we're doing. All we're doing is trying to participate, just as others have done before us, in shaping what constitutes the standards of beauty to which you object, and that's your right, but uh, don't accuse me of being against beauty. I, I just have a different way of looking at it than you do. Well, 
you know, this this sophisticated academic argument about gatekeepers and the uh, you know, the inevitable particularity and exclusion, exclusivity of a canon formation is all very well and good. But again, I just note, Glenn, it only applies to the West. Uh, there is you can go to like every Bradley, every major art institution museum today. And if you go to the uh, section on Dutch Baroque masterpieces, and you go to the still life section, they all now have wall labels that say, please see this gorgeous composition of, of translucent grapes and silver and gold and lem- peeled lemons and oysters. See this as all about colonialism. Uh, it is only about exploitation that, that you know, these, the salt cellar, the salt in the cellar may have been mined in some African mines. So this is not about uh, an effort to to take the implements of everyday life and give them some sublime beauty of of brushwork and composition. This is simply about oppression. Every the Metropolitan Museum of Art has that. The National Gallery of Art in in D.C. I was just in the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. They all have these labels. Then you can go to the African wing uh, and you will not see deconstructive wall labels. You will not be told that, well, this this image of a of a uh, warrior uh, from the Nigerian kingdom does not show you his victims. It does not show you the people that he has enslaved. Uh, It will it will. Treat art respectfully on its taking its own claims at self at, at, at face value. Uh, and it's not a question of merely opening up the canon. Uh, that is something that I do support. I recently reviewed a concert at the New York Philharmonic, uh, that was on exclusively a black theme called the March to Liberation. And there was a wonderful uh, Symphony Number no. Two by William Grant Still and a work by Adolfo's Hailstorp uh, on on civil rights themes. They were musically wonderful. I was very grateful to have heard these works. But that is not what is going on. What is going on is the effort to uh, disparage Beethoven, who absolutely transformed classical music with his ground. Radical structures and the publishers would completely rewrite his symphonies before publishing them because they so contravened the tannins of composition at that point. And they said, this is not tolerable. Uh, we have to, you know, water it down. But Beethoven is now being portrayed by this musicologist, Philip Ewell at, at Hunter and elsewhere as simply his only, his only, the only reason that anybody has ever thought he's great is because he's a white male. This is completely preposterous. Uh, thousands, you know, for, for hundreds of years or a hundred, you know, decades, people have acknowledged that there are certain works that do reach to, I would say, and I'm still a deconstructionist at heart, but I, I have to say that there are certain objective 
accomplishments, even as I am well aware of how canon formation can change. You know, John Dryden was was up for a very long time in the English literature canon, and now it's very hard to find him on a curriculum uh, or in a, in a English department. So things really what's that? What's hard to find? John Dryden. He was a seventeenth oh. uh, century poet that followed in the heels of Shakespeare, and he. He had his own Anthony Cleopendra, and now it strikes us as a little bit stiff, but it used to be that, you know, he was even considered superior to Shakespeare. Uh, and in music, you know, for a long time, nobody was performing Gustav Mahler, and then 20th century went into this absolute Mahler frenzy, and there was a period where you can't avoid a Mahler cycle. So things really do change. I have to acknowledge that, but I still think that when we are hearing... The Brahms and Chopin, we are hearing something very real. Okay, now I, I'm, again, putting myself in the devil's advocate seat. <clears throat> uh, European high culture is parasitic on European colonialism, and the reason I don't show respect for the former is because I have contempt for the latter. That's the argument. Parasitic in the sense that the leisure class and the surplus that was needed to support it that allowed for individuals to pursue their interest in the arts rested upon an economic foundation of expropriation, of slavery, of colonial domination, and so on. That's what created the wealth that gave uh, the Austrian emperor or the um, uh, London-based businessman or whomever philanthropist the resources with which they supported the production of these artistic works. And I have contempt for that. Uh, and hence, I don't have reverence for the fruit of that. What's wrong with that? Well, you can say that about anything, I guess. Uh, that would mean that any kind of human accomplishment that exists in a world that is not absolutely egalitarian uh, must be torn down. And I would say culture is much more complicated than that. There are uh, human endeavors that involve the life of the mind, the life of the of the spirit, the life of of our our yearning, our fears, our sorrows, and they they cannot be reduced, should not be reduced to material conditions, even though. Uh, clearly, there is a, a relationship between various structures of society and 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 the economy. Um, but to to not acknowledge that art has its own amazing stylistic development that is not at all it's it's a it's preposterous to say that it tracks. Uh, conditions of production in some Marxist way. It does not. I, I think that one of the, the great human dramas is the evolution of style, whether it's in visual art or musical art or literary art. These, you know, how do we get from medieval epic, Le Roman de la Rose in, in France that, and a, a literary vocabulary that used allegory that did not have the uh, resources or the interest possibly simply of describing the individual psyche, but instead had 
knights and and allegorical personifications of virtue or deception. How did we get from that literary vocabulary to the to the intense empirical and psychological acuity of the 19th century novel, whether it's by George Eliot or Leo Tolstoy, that is an incredible journey of human expression that is not explained by the development of feudal economies uh, into industrial capitalism. It may have some remote explanation, but it, it, it can be understood as an interior development, and the same thing from Gregorian chant to Rachmaninoff's second piano concerto. That is an incredible sea change of what human beings can express. So uh, I, I think it is absurd to say, well, I, I deplore colonialism, and so anything that exists in an age of colonialism is of no interest to me, or sh I should condemn. But again, I'm just going to say, my my first response to all of these is, okay, if you're going to use that deconstructive sort of pseudo-Marxist demystifying impulse, apply it across the board. Uh, why don't you apply it to yeah. China and its oppression of the serf or to Indian, extraordinary Indian classical music with its caste system? or to African tribal genocide. We don't do it. Yeah, um, uh, I hear you. The West. I, I have a thought. I wonder how you'd react to it. This is in this uh, uh, part of your book talking about um, the arts and uh, how the equity imperative seems to be undermining uh, an appreciation for and pursuit of, of beauty. And it is this. Uh, I have a student, a former student, uh, who's a brilliant concert pianist. And I went to one of his performances with uh, the Brown Student Orchestra here at Brown. He was playing a Brahms concerto in B minor. And I'm not a music person, but you probably know the piece that I'm talking about. He performed magnificently, as did the orchestra. And I'm sitting there with my wife and we're just, you know, just absorbing this gorgeous cascade of sound. And I'm looking at the orchestra and it's at least a third and maybe more Asian. No kidding. The head violinist, the lead violinist, the string section, the horns. I mean, there were a lot of Asian musicians in the audience, kids, students at Brown. And I thought to myself, well, um, they have embraced the, these youngsters and I assume their families and the sort of cultural location from which they come, European high art as their own. They're not looking over their shoulders thinking that they're betraying their ancestors or that they're being white adjacent or, uh, or uh, you know, what do they call them? Bananas, you know, yellow on the outside. Why they're not thinking any of that. They're just learning how to play the fiddle. They're mastering the score and, and, and they're, they're achieving a kind of sublime excellence. And I thought to myself, and I wonder what you think about this. Maybe it's because they have confidence that they're not threatened by European achievement uh, since they can uh, uh, look on their own uh, uh, ethnic cultural history with a great deal of pride. And maybe a instinctive revulsion or re repulse, being repulsed by uh, European high art is in a way betraying 
a lack of confidence in oneself and an unwillingness to kind of, you know, appreciate what another civilization has produced without feeling that, that that's one kind of answer. Of course, my answer is it's my civilization too. Well, I, mean, I, I was, my ancestors are not mainly Europeans, but I am uh, here in the West. I, I, I'm an American. I, I'm this, all I've ever known is uh, this cultural uh, environment. Uh, it, why wouldn't I embrace it as my own? Why, why does racial ancestry define cultural inheritance? That's my answer. But I, I'm asking two different things at the same time. The one main thing I'm trying to get you to respond to is, uh, doesn't it seem like uh, this problem of uh, uh, reticence to appreciate the, the value of uh, European high culture is more uh, prevalent in some non-European quarters than in others. Well, you've also articulated, obviously, the Du Bois statement, which just breaks my heart. I, I can't even repeat it because I'll start crying again. But, um, you know, his sense of walking arm in arm with, with Aristotle and Aurelius and, and, a, and a magnificent belief in his and everybody else's ability to take in the entirety of Western or probably world civilization. I think what you have uh, extraordinarily astutely described without using the term itself is the pathetic concept of cultural appropriation, Glenn, which has got to be the stupid, like in a, a field of, of very, very strong competitors. Cultural appropriation may well be the most idiotic idea to come out of the academic left and the identitarian left, that there is something improper about aspiring to understand or enjoy or consume uh, a, a different cultural tradition. And, and this, it is absolutely, you're, you're again, you have, you have explained something to me just as you did with the, uh, how, how we're going to react to a, a decision on the Harvard racial preferences case, uh, the idea of how to explain cultural appropriation, that this, this idiotic concept, rather, which is a lack of confidence in one's own uh, cultural work somehow. And, and so I write in the book about just some of these idiots at the Juilliard Drama Division, the Juilliard School you know, major conservatory in, in New York City. They have a drama division and their black students went, had a complete uh, meltdown, hugely performative, hugely overwrought, uh, pathetic over a uh, recreation of the black slave trade taken out of roots. Uh, but they, they're dividing all these boundaries, you know, well, you can't you can't have us do white works, but you also can't have white people do black works. And uh, this carving things out, say you cannot step over these lines. It's ridiculous. Culture is appropriation by definition. It is voracious. It it takes in whatever it can. The West has been particularly voracious, uh, and rightly so because you cannot put barbed wire around the human imagination. It will, it will leap to its own devices, leap over those boundaries and, and try to conquer and enter new fields of expression. 
Um, as far as the the uh, idea that yes, Asians. I mean, if 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 China finally decides that it's not interested in Western classical music, it, the tradition's over. You know, right <laughs> now there's tens of millions of Chinese students in China who are learning to pay, play the piano because their parents haven't yet got the message that classical music is somehow dowdy or or irrelevant. And thank God for them. And Beijing music conservatories are 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 booming. Uh, concert halls are booming there. And yes, it's not just Brown's uh, student orchestra that is a third Asian. Most of the top orchestras in the United States, professional orchestras, also are way overrepresented for Asians because they are have the same home culture that we were talking about before with regards to academic achievement of intense tiger mom uh, involvement and a belief that there is something valuable there. There's a, a wonderful classical pianist, Chinese, named Long Long, uh, and he's got his detractors because at the beginning of his career, he was very uh, flamboyant in his gestures. But I have to say, and you know, some of the elites may turn down their nose at this, but I, I find his interpretations inevitably uh, eye-opening, and he, he hears inner voices and pieces that are extraordinary. And there is something... I can, I can tell a long, long performance of a Beethoven sonata on the radio within like two notes because there's something always new there. In any case, he was raised by a tiger dad in China who was purging on abuse. I mean, he was uh, disciplining long, long to practice at just extreme extremes of, of, of human uh, effort. And Long Long was winning competitions in China. And then he was finally going to enter his first European based piano competition. And he was very scared. He said, Well, how can I do this? You know, it's their tradition. And his father said, It's not their tradition. It's our tradition. It is the world's tradition. You have as much right to that music as a somebody who's grown up in Vienna. And and that is true. It is our tradition. Uh, it is everybody's tradition. So, you know, that is the attitude that we should be inculcating, not this ridiculous idea of drawing little police line, do not cross here around different artistic traditions. You know, I just had a, a, a very disturbing thought which is that the 21st century may end up belonging to the Chinese because we in America and the West didn't have enough confidence in our own cultural inheritance to defend it against the barbarians at the gates. The barbarians at the gates are the equity mongers who yeah. would destroy elite intellectual and cultural uh, institutions here in the interest of, uh, of racial parity. And I mean, it would be profoundly ironic that the non-European Chinese uh, behemoth, uh, not just an economy, but a cultural force to be reckoned with for generations to come, would overtake us because they saw the virtue of the European inheritance and made it their own. I mean, I read a piece in Quillette a couple of years ago by some mathematicians. They were all American 
not American born. They were ex, uh, they were born uh, abroad, but they came to the United States. They got PhDs in mathematics and they were teaching at American universities. And they were saying that uh, the uh, uh, upper end of uh, the mathematics uh, uh, intellectual uh, hierarchy is uh, to some degree uh, lapsing here in the United States because scholars are going, taking positions at Chinese universities where you know, they're doing mathematics and that's the only thing that they're really concerned about. And that's just an anecdote. But I mean, if it's a harbinger of things to come, it's a it's a very, you know, sadly ironic uh, story that we'd be telling about our time. Well, it's yeah, it's and disparate impact explains everything. It is all everything in the West today, practically. And this is a exaggeration, but still, I'm going to say it anyway is driven by disparate impact. And we are tearing down gifted and talented programs in math uh, and and science because they have a disparate impact on blacks. And so we've decided that rather than give our most promising students whatever race and ethnicity their best chance at success by throwing everything we got at them, we'd rather not have any gifted and talented programs because at present, they will not be proportionally diverse. Meanwhile, China takes its top tap math talent and puts them in absolutely intense training programs. Uh, and it is, they are whooping our ass in nanotechnologies uh, and it's going to happen more and more and more. Uh, but be, we would, we would rather not have uh, the ability to inculcate and, and develop our talent and and have it not be and have it be uh not proportionally worse than to cultivate it at all. So yes, we are deliberately shutting down our competitive capacity. It's in the arts and it's in, in sciences as well. And it, it's insane. It is absolutely insane. And and also, you know, you said if if China stops involved in the music, it's gonna end. If if China stops sending us its graduate students into our PhD programs in STEM, uh, we will have to shut those down because we're not producing enough American uh, STEM graduates to compete. And partly because uh, we have this thumb that we're putting down to try to depress advanced uh, education in the, in the name of avoiding disparate impact. Yeah, this is where I part company with my friend, Amy Wax, who is worried about Asian immigration. And I'm saying, you know, I hope I hope they stay. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, let's because uh, we're running a little long here. Let's let's talk about the third part of your three part indictment of the pursuit of equity, which is you say it's costing lives. It's it's threatening lives. It's undermining the rule of law. Uh, do you want to expand on that a little bit of what you're concerned about there? I mean, I, you know, this is the author of The War on Cops uh, I'm talking to here. This is the woman who coined the term, the Ferguson effect. Uh, but I'm, but maybe you could just uh, tell us a little bit more about what you're concerned about in the area of law, crime, policing, and so on. Well, again, we've decided we'd rather not enforce the law than enforce it in a neutral, colorblind fashion and have a disparate impact on black. So everything... If anybody's been paying attention and maybe just box news viewers out to what's going on in the criminal law system, criminal enforcement system since the George Floyd riots uh, with prosecutors 
declining to prosecute whole categories of crime, whether it's turnstile jumping or shoplifting or theft or uh, loitering or or disorderly conduct, resisting arrest, which is the most appalling, uh, drug possession, drug sales, even gun possession. Why are prosecutors not prosecuting? Why are police chiefs often saying, well, we're not going to enforce traffic laws any longer? Uh, it's all because of disparate impact. Uh, and this has resulted in this unwinding of law enforcement, which you're right. Thank you for the Ferguson effect credit, Glenn. Uh, what we saw post George Floyd was either Ferguson effect 2.0 or the Minneapolis effect, uh, which has been so much worse than the initial iteration of the Ferguson effect, which is the combined phenomenon of officer depolicing, backing off of proactive enforcement, enforcement and the resulting emboldening of, of criminals after George Floyd. The United States saw its largest one-year increase in homicide in its history, 29% one-year increase. And I don't need to tell you, uh, Glenn, that any a 29% one-year change in any kind of field is a very, very large statistical change. Uh, and the primary victims of that increase in homicide have been Black. Uh, we now have between blacks between the ages of 10 and 24 die of gun homicide at 25 times the rate of white and Hispanic between the ages of 10 and 24. That's a civil rights problem that our civil rights activists do not want to talk about uh, because the, the people who are killing blacks at 25 times the rate of whites between the ages of 10 and 24 are themselves overwhelmingly like with all those zero exceptions black and bizarrely uh we've decided that the, the civil rights activists have decided that they care more about black criminals than black victims that's not intuitively obvious why that should have been the case but that is what's the case and so we are dismantling prosecution we are dismantling incarceration uh because we don't want to put more black criminals in prison, the result is the loss of more black lives. And nobody wants to talk about that loss of black lives because doing so in an honest fashion would mean talking about black criminals. And we don't want to do that. Let me, uh, again, in the interest of trying to conjure up what the other side of this argument might be, Michelle Alexander, The New Jim Crow. This was a book of, I don't know, 2012, 2013, something like that, that was a big bestseller. And she alleged, in effect, that mass incarceration was a latter-day instantiation of a long-standing American uh, contempt for Black people and uh, relegation of Black people to the bottom of the heap. Uh, whatever you might, and I think I can guess what you might think of that argument, but and, and you should say if you want. Uh, might there not be something to the idea that I have a war on drugs because I'm concerned about the effects of uh, certain kinds of substances on the young people in my society, and I and I want to extirpate the use or limit as much as I can the use of these dangerous substances, cocaine and heroin, methamphetamines. So I, I have a war on drugs. When I enforce the war on drugs, uh, I disproportionately end up incarcerating people from certain communities who are themselves more likely to be involved in the drug 
trafficking at the retail commercial level, although they may not be more any more likely to be users of drugs than than others in the society. In in particular, inner city black and Latino young men who have poorly educated and don't have alternative employment prospects are disproportionately drawn to the drug trafficking. So when I enforce the law against uh, drugs, I end up locking them up. Now, if I were talking about prostitution and I focused on street-level purveyors of uh, sexual services, I'd end up locking up a lot of poor women, uh, as opposed to locking up the Johns who constitute the other side of that market. Uh, Might I not, in the interest of racial equity, forbear in some of my punitive response to drug use in the society on the argument that even if I enforce the law without racial bias, the consequence of doing so will be to criminalize a identifiable and severely disadvantaged segment of my population, just as if I were to enforce by locking up street uh, providers of sexual services uh, laws against prostitution, I would mainly criminalize uh, desperate and, and uh, severely disadvantaged women. There are other ways of responding to the problem of drugs. I don't necessarily have to be as punitive in, in the way in which I respond. And the motivation of racial equity in me being a little bit less punitive is a perfectly legitimate ethical argument to me. Do you see what I'm asking? Yeah, and you're asking several things, and I know that you've covered this ground a lot, and your your viewers already know this, but um, first of all, I mean, just the the uh, impetus for the war on drugs has almost always come from the black community itself. James Fortner's written about this. Uh, uh, but at the Yale Law School's name is... Yeah, oh. uh, Foreman. Foreman and Fortner. Michael Fortner and James Foreman. Fortner and James. Michael Fortner's book is called The Silent Black Majority, and Fortner's book is called Locking Up Our Own. Yeah. Uh, but, they, but, but they both make the point that you're making, which is anti-drug uh, yeah. but, but, law enforcement but, coming from black people complaining about the effects on their communities of drug trafficking. Right, and and Foreman writes about the the crack cocaine war, uh, which yeah. so again came out of the Congressional Black Caucus. So uh, that was there was a perception that drug use as well as drug trafficking was destroying those admirable, essential institutions of bourgeois respectability that blacks had built up in the face of the most ugly, contemptible segregation and and contempt from the white white community. And it was a sense of we have to do something about this. We're being destroyed by this drug use. Nobody would be complaining about drug enforcement if it didn't have a disparate impact. But the fact that something having a disparate impact should not be conclusive proof that we should throw it out. It may be that it, it still one has to look at the underlying behaviors and change those rather than throwing out the standards. Um, so does that mean, excuse me, does that mean that if the black community had strenuously objected 
to uh, the criminalization of drug trafficking that you would have respected that objection as being relevant to the question of whether or not we should enforce anti-drugs laws? Um, possibly. Uh, well, I, I mean, we're sort of, the question is who, you know, uh, it's always a question, who, who speaks for that community? And uh, right now you can say that, well, some portion of the black community, but part of the activists are saying, stop enforcing all laws. I can go to a police community meeting in the South Bronx or Central Harlem. And what I hear from the good people that show up to those community meetings is we want more enforcement. I've heard people say, I smell marijuana in my apartment corridor. Can't you do something about it? Or there's people smoking weed uh, that I can see out my window at the uh, hanging out at the club. Why can't you get them off the street? So who are you speaking for? Now, that's a problem that you could say for any kind of political action. Uh, and there's always buying groups that purport to represent the people. Um, but uh, so I, I guess I would say that, well, I guess, yes, law enforcement, the degree to which we want the police to be proactive is a political judgment. And if we have a functioning political system, yes, you can ask for more or less law enforcement. I would just say that the victims, uh, when we when we back off of enforcement, because enforcement has a disparate impact, the victims are disproportionately black. And maybe we don't care about that. It seems like we don't. Uh, if you if you if you talk about black, if you talk about crime. In a colorblind fashion, you don't even talk about race. You will still be accused of sending out a racist dog whistle by the New York Times or CNN, uh, which is an interesting admission on their part, because you can say, well, I didn't talk about race. Well, but you're being a racist. So somehow the left knows something there that it's not let, letting on uh, that it, if you are talking about urban street crime, the sad fact of the matter is you are talking overwhelmingly about black victims and black perpetrators. Um, so. Uh, yeah, we're, we're getting to the end, I think, here. But I want to ask you about the chapter in your book on the trial of Derek Chauvin, uh, which I thought was very disturbing. Uh, the point that you make compellingly was very disturbing. And, and I, I want to get you to talk about it a little bit. Uh, so uh, we were all on pins and needles awaiting the verdict in the trial of Derek Chauvin for the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis. And everybody was braced for the possibility of a violent civil disorder in the aftermath of that trial. That jury came back with a guilty verdict and the worst possible outcomes were, were abetted, were avoided. And yet the idea that uh, that jury bore the burden of knowing that the consequences of its deliberation quite possibly could have triggered uh, uh, massive uh, civil unrest, loss of life, and destruction of property on a national basis. Make, it makes one wonder whether or not it was possible for uh, Derek Chauvin to get a fair trial at all, and then causes one to wonder further whether or not the very rule of law is being undermined by our uh, concern about uh, people's insistence on what they understand to be racial equity. Uh, am I reading you correctly there? And and what do you make of this uh, as a, a general commentary on the state of the 
uh, rule of law in American society today. Well, you're right. If you're a police officer, it'd be a very scary thing right now uh, to face a criminal trial, uh, rightly or wrongly, uh, because there is this threat of riots. Fred Siegel, uh, who's also associated with the Manhattan Institute, wrote about this years ago and talked about the riot ideology, which, yeah, I'm going to be very frank here, uh, Glenn, is is the sense that uh, Blacks sort of get somewhat of a free pass in rioting. And we, we all kind of expect that if there's an issue involving uh, Blacks and the police, that there's hangs over that always threat of riots. And it seems like this is asymmetrical. It's not something we worry about uh, if a white person has been killed by the police. But but if a black person has been killed by the police, there's always that threat. And um, so it is a question. Every jury has to worry that the barricades go up. You know, the National Guard is put on alert uh, that if you do acquit, on the basis of the evidence, if you feel that there is not, uh, you know, overwhelming probable cause to find guilt or uh, that, and you, you just can't bring yourself to make that judgment and the city or the nation goes up in fire, that's on you. It's on your conscience. So I don't know what you do about it. I really don't. It's, it is, but it, for police officers, it is very scary. And this is just another reason why they're disengaging that post George Floyd, there has been a flight from the profession that recruiting is over in the United States for police. Nobody wants to join a profession where you're deemed a racist by definition from your first day on the job and the amount of retirements, early, early retirements, attrition is, is extraordinary. So police departments are way understaffed across the country, which creates a vicious cycle of officers knowing they're not going to get back up if they if they have a, a confrontation that goes bad, so they're even less likely to proactively engage. So it's a very bad cycle we're in right now. Um and I I don't know. I mean we sort of let it get out of hand with after the George Floyd with the George Floyd race riots where a lot of politicians were unwilling to forthrightly condemn this. There was a lot of Hemming and hawing going on about, well, we have to understand the anger uh, and um, whether we had been more forceful from the start and say nothing, no degree of sense of outrage justifies you destroying somebody's business. That business owner is not responsible for whatever you're angry about. If, if we'd been more forceful in putting down the rides, maybe it would have helped, but I don't know. But you're you're absolutely right. This is something to be worried about. Okay. Uh, I got a final question for you, Heather. It, it, you know, the Soros-backed progressive DAs who've gotten elected in cities around the country, Alvin Bragg in New York, Larry Krasner in Philadelphia, Chesil Bodine in San Francisco, George Gascon in LA, and Kim Fox and Gardner in St. Louis. You know, we could go on down the list. What's your assessment? Where do things stand now? I mean, we're a couple of three years down the road from the summer of 2020. There's been pushback, and I believe Bodine was uh, recalled, as I recall, in San Francisco. Um, there uh, are uh, 
countervailing forces at play? Are there not DAs are resigning in the a score? You say they can't get cops, they can't get DAs on in uh, St. Louis. Uh, their people are going public, walking out of the DA's office, saying they won't prosecute uh, criminals. Um, so I, it's a two part question. What do you think is going to happen there? Is have we passed peace, peak woke? And the other part of the question is, how do these people get elected in the first place? I mean, uh, uh, Mayor, former Mayor Nutter, Nutter of Philadelphia publicly castigated Larry Krasner for not enforcing the law where black people were the ones who were bearing the brunt end of it. And Krasner basically said, F you. He, he basically said, damn you, I'm going to run for election. The people are going to reelect me. And that's the end of the that's the end of the conversation. So wh- what do you make of the radical D.A.? situation. How do you think things are going to shake out? Well, I don't think we're past peak woke yet, Glenn, uh, because yes, the Bodine recall was a very good sign. However, Gaskell has survived two recalls. This is the George Gaskell in LA, uh, who was possibly worse than Bet Boudin. I mean, I, I think he may be the worst of them all. Uh, he survived two recall elections. And I don't think that crime played the role it should have done in the 2022 midterm elections. Uh, but we just have the example in Chicago in the runoff where the previous, previous defunder of the police, Brandon Johnson, won the mayoralty over Paul Vallis. And, and Johnson, he had his highest percentage of votes in the highest crime neighborhoods and precincts in Chicago, which is a very depressing thing. Uh, so I, I think that the Discourse that that any kind of criminal enforcement that has a disparate impact on blacks is racist is still very powerful in the uh, in 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 society, and it seems to be it's it's it, the most perplexing thing is is why there isn't more of a revolt among blacks against this ideology. There's some, but not strong enough, uh, and I'm I'm not qualified to. I don't know enough. I haven't done enough investigation to be able to answer that question. But I would say that what's going to take turn it around is white kids getting shot in drive-by shootings. Right now, the only people who really seem to care about black lives outside of the police are white conservatives, you know, on Fox News or in the New York Post. They keep on saying, wait, 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 we thought black lives matter, but they don't. Um, and but if, if if white kids were being gunned down in these barbaric drive-by shootings the way black kids are in their homes, backyards, front yards, parents' cars, jumping on trampolines in parks, then maybe things would turn around and we would say it's time to go back to enforcing the law again, rather than saying we don't, you know, we're gonna uh, stop enforcing whole categories of law because of disparate impact. I think these black electorates are on the horns of a dilemma. I think they want to identify both with the victims and with the perpetrators because actually they are both the victims and the perpetrators or their cousin or their nephew or their neighbor. I think it's a hard problem, not an easy problem. And I think leadership is the key, in my opinion whether it be leadership from the pulpit of a local church or it be leadership from the office of the president of the United States when that person was a black man. Uh, and all up and down the line, uh, I think the civil rights aristocracy in this country, the people who 
populate the Congressional Black Caucus and who run the NAACP and the Urban League and all of that are uh, criminally negligent in their responsibilities to lead our community. I talk about Black Americans in the big cities of this country over what is very difficult terrain. Of course, we cannot be indifferent to the sufferings of the disadvantaged, and we cannot be without sympathy for the people who may find themselves in a drug-selling gang with a pistol in their hand who go and do a terrible thing. We can't be indifferent to them. They are our brothers, sisters, nephews, and so forth and so on. On the other hand, we, we must maintain the integrity of our community, and we must stand up for the innocent. For, for, and, and you give so many of these anecdotes in, your, in this part of your book where you talk about kids who are killed in drive-by shootings. They're sitting on their grandmother's lap. They're riding on a bicycle or playing in a playground or whatever it is like that. And it requires courage. It requires courage to say that the failures in our community are throwing off these uh, bad actors who must be dealt with by the only means available to us, which is policing and law. Uh, we can do it in a, ma- in a manner that does not forget their humanity, but that nevertheless stands firm in our affirmation of basic principles of decency. Uh, respectability is not a bad thing. I mean, this thing drives me up the wall. People say respectability policy is if I should be unconcerned about what other people think of my community. What about self-respect, et cetera? So I'm with you 100%, Heather, and I wanted to be on the record saying so. Now, that's absolutely eloquent. And, uh, you know, I really should not try to add one word to it, but I will just say they've got a hustle going. It's a race hustle. It is. And at some point, um, it's at the, at, and it's at the expense of their communities and at the expense of dignity. Meet the standards. You know, that would be a really good line of leadership is we're actually going to meet the standards. We don't want standards to be lowered on our behalf. But as Shelby Steele articulated decades ago, right now you have this codependency between guilty whites and and blacks who are playing on their guilt. And it's it's in nobody's interest. It's it's not in the interest of people for whom you're lowering standards and it's not in the greater society's interest. And everybody should say meet the standards. Everybody can do it. Work hard. Uh, with effort, you can succeed. And right now, the excuse making does not help anybody. But it, it is a hustle and the, and the civil rights leadership doesn't want to give up that uh, moral authority that they have by playing on white guilt. But it's a it's a self-destructive strategy to be taking. Yeah. OK, well. This has been Heather McDonald. <laughs> the, the book is called When Race Trumps Merit, uh, How the Pursuit of Equity is Sacrificing Excellence, Destroying Beauty, and Threatening Lives. Uh, I am so glad to have had the hour and a half. Heather, we don't usually go this long, but we're making an exception in your case, uh, in your company. And there's going to be a lot of blowback, uh, I'm sure. Uh, and I invite people to, you know, come into the comments and let us know what you think. But thank you so much, Heather. It was fantastic, Glenn. It's always it's such a great honor. And you expand my knowledge and, and my curiosity about things. So thank you. You're welcome. <laughs>